if you can dream it, if you can get to the point where you can give yourself permission to dream something you've never seen before, then that sparks that sparks in you, that sparks in your community, that sparks in the world, uh, and that's what we need. So dream, keep dreaming. From Dear Go Collective, this is Responsibly Different, sharing stories of certified B Corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. In a society where we are urged to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and encouraged to work longer and harder, We often can become disconnected from each other and ourselves, with the backdrop of disparities for underrepresented populations being highlighted by the current pandemic, along with efforts to ensure that Black lives do matter. Businesses and organizations are looking for answers on how to best support their communities and their teams. How do we ensure equity in the workplace? How do we move through conflict resolution with thoughtfulness and care? How do we take care of ourselves and each other? To answer some of these questions, I reached out to Diana Marie Lee and Samuel Gonzalez, the founders of the co-op Sweet Liberty. Tell me a little bit about the moment that led you both to kind of realize that you wanted to help people, because I feel like that's really what Sweet Liberty does. First, just thank you for having us. I'm really grateful. When I think about myself, I, I think about my childhood. Then I was really sick as a kid. Um, I had asthma, really bad in and out of the emergency room, missed a lot of school. And I do remember like mm, having mixed feelings about having to be cared for and tended to so much, which makes me compassionate for people now that we support because it, it requires a lot of vulnerability to allow people to help you. Um, so I remember when I was probably maybe 10 and I saw this Jerry Lewis telethon on TV about muscular dystrophy. And um, when I saw the story of these other children who had special healthcare needs, but their needs felt more severe than mine in some way. And they had an opportunity for children. If you were interested in helping other children, um, they would send you a kit in the mail. And I got really inspired by that, like to feel like someone who was sick a lot of the time and needed my parents and other people to help me to have a sense that I could help somebody else. And so that was my first like entree into like community organizing. I didn't know that's what it was, but I grew up in North Richmond in California in the Bay Area, which um, at the time I was growing up was considered a pretty um, tough place to grow up as a kid. But I remember organizing my friends and their parents to like raise money and I got businesses to donate food um, and other things so we could have a little carnival on our block and raise money for children with muscular dystrophy. So I don't remember right now how much we raised, but I do remember what it felt like to ask people to help me to help somebody else. And so I think from that moment on, I was, I was, that was it. That was a wrap. That was something I knew. I would do the rest of my life. Um, so as a child, um, I have always been, uh, I have been what I call a hyper empath. 
like super aware of everybody's other emotional states um, to the point where I, I mean, they told me I was, I, I would cry all the time as a child, as a baby, um, which was of course annoying for parents. <laughs> um, but with that, I also just didn't fit in with the other kids who were pretty brusque, definitely um, as, uh, as the boys, you know, rough housed, I did not, I could not engage in the same way that they did. Um, so there was always this sort of sense of isolation, and a little bit of shame about who I was as a person, as just a being, as a child. And I and I, I think that developed over time. Like I remember I grew up in church um, and I remember when the, we were Pentecostal. So when uh, they do the altar calls and when we I was in the Latin Assembly of God at the time. So I, if you know anything about Mexicans, Mexicans are criers. They love to cry. And so anytime they would have altar call, I would be in tears, just feeling this wave. And I could never explain what that was. Um, but I knew that if I could, if I could, whatever I could do to not have somebody feel the things that I feel in terms of isolated and um, rejected or, or made fun of or bullied, um, I didn't, I would, I wanted to protect others from that. Um, I didn't think it was obviously fair for me to experience. And if I could do anything to change that for someone else, then I would. Let's kind of talk a little bit about the journey to Sweet Livity. How how did your paths cross? How did how did Sweet Livity come to be? I'm also an intersection of different identities: uh, Afro, Indigenous, Mexican, queer, uh, on the gender non-biased binary spectrum also on the asexual spectrum, um, just a lot of different places where <laughs> I, I, I present as male. Um, and so that these all these intersections kind of get me into places where I have them become a bridge. Like people will talk or disparage another group or have questions about why do these, why do they? Um, and I'll, I'll be able to give sort of a bridge statement. Well, this is what I feel like in those situations. Uh, obviously, I can't be the voice for every identity, um, and we're all very, very different. Uh, but that's where it was like a natural, so it's a natural progression. And in every job that I had, it was always like this teaching. Uh, this even when I was doing IT work, um, my clients would refer to me as a, like a teacher versus just an IT guy because the IT guys get this very bad rap about like you're they they're condescending <laughs> let me just put that out there uh and so folks that are at the time where technology was exploding there's a large segment of elderly folks who didn't couldn't keep up with that it was a huge shift and nobody had the patience to actually sit with them and talk to them um, as well as uh communities of color who didn't have access to broadband or things like that so all of the time doing work, um, always bridging gaps, always doing these things, always doing trainings. Uh, even in my IT work, I would focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of frameworks. And I knew that I was a healer on top of that. And so connecting to ancestral ways for me uh, meant I was, I was not only healing myself, but healing my ancestors and my descendants. And, and, and so how can I incorporate this into the work that I do? Because this is what I, this, so these were all like culminations of like 
layers of like, oh yeah, this is me, this is also me, this is also me. And having these different identities was was uh, sort of fostered that like, oh, I can incorporate all of this into something professionally because I know how to navigate all of those pieces. Um, and so the synergy happened when when Diana and I met at the National Community Development Institute in 2003. And then I will let Diana <laughs> start talking about how how we formed. Up until founding um, with Sam and other Sweet Vividity, every job I've ever had, I either quit or was fired from. If I was fired from it, it was because I was failing. And I, I remember in those occasions feeling such pressure as someone who identified as black woman, fat body, disabled. Like I just felt such pressure, particularly because of my black identity to succeed so that like maybe someone else could get through the door because I was always the only one or one of maybe two who shared my racial identity as a black person. And I, I just didn't understand why I felt so uncomfortable for the majority of the time and the wear and tear it was taking on me um, mentally and emotionally. So I just didn't know how to ask for help. And so I was honestly flailing and failing. If I quit, uh, which was the majority of the time, it was because I saw an injustice happening in the workplace that did not make sense to me. And even though I didn't have the skills yet to understand how to organize in a space like that, I try, I fail. Um, and so I would be, you know, so I would just document everything and I was a letter writer and I was like, I'm out. I quit. Um, and so, um, through all of those jobs, my first career was in public health and my second career was in nonprofit community development. And that's where Sam Wall and I met. And even in that context where everyone was a person of color, we were still harming each other and creating a toxic work environment. I was like, wait a minute. So there's something more to it. It's not just like if it's a white majority workplace. So why is it that this workplace also feels so painful? And so I remember I got to a point um, after failing once again to organize on behalf of the employees. I was a VP at that point. I realized that if I stayed, I was either literally not going to make it. So I was getting really, really sick. Or I wasn't going to like the person then that I would have to become if I stayed and was able to thrive in that environment. And so I left. I left a six-figure job with benefits. I went on a healing journey. And dreams that I had when I was a kid started returning because those were kids I had as a child when I wanted to think about a way to do healing work, even as someone who was so sick as a, at a young age. And so I went on a healing journey. When I came back from Belize, which is where I lived for a while on that healing journey, I remember going through a process of dreaming to think about whom should I reach out to. Samwell was the first person that came to mind. And so I reached out to Samwell and a few others, and then that's how we started. We, we softly launched in 2011, and um, we formally launched in 2012. But the dream was, like, what could it look like to integrate the healing that had helped me, like, reclaim my sense of joy and purpose and recover somewhat um, physically? Like, what would that look like to integrate that into the work that we used to do? What advice would you give to somebody who maybe is experiencing a similar either burnout or just feeling discomfort in their work environment or that toxic that toxicity it sounds like you had this amazing healing journey and were able to come back and fold into this new path in this really beautiful way and i and i 
speaking of my, I'll own myself. I've experienced some burnout in organizing and, you know, got to a point where I was like, I, I just can't do that work anymore, which breaks my heart, you know? And so I'm just so curious, like how, how would you um, suggest people move through that? I'll say a couple of things and see what you'll say. So I think part of the problem, Ben, is that we were all born to this capitalistic um, white supremacy culture that has us creating workplaces that don't work for the majority of people. They only work for maybe the top 2% of the population. And so I think part of the challenge when you're an individual who's burning out, struggling, trying to figure it out is that it's a systemic problem. And then it gets reduced to the level of I'm not, I'm not cutting it. I'm not coping. I need to figure something out. So what I will say is like, and we'll talk about that later, maybe or another time we visit with you. So I think part of it is like we have to dismantle the way we do things and we have to reimagine how we conceptualize and actually practice work because the majority of people in the world, including in the U.S., have to work for a living. It's not an option, right? It's not like we we have to work. Um, And, you know, the data is showing that overwhelmingly, if you look at the data from like the American Psychological Association or like on a global level, the World Health Organization, money is no longer the number one stressor for people. It's work. And when you ask people, well, what is it about work that has you so stressed out? They say how I'm treated at work. The level of discrimination and harassment that they say that they they feel at work, regardless of their identity. So I'm talking about people, color, and white folks, everybody. But what's interesting is the data also shows if you're someone like Sam to what you spoke to, if you're someone who has intersecting identities that are normally on the margins or oppressed or invisibilized, you know, um, someone with a disability, someone with a mental illness, someone who identifies as queer or a person of color, or et cetera, then there's, there's, the numbers are staggering. You're talking about 70% or more of those folks saying, at work, I'm not comfortable. At work, I'm not valued. I'm not appreciated. At work, I get sick. So I think that one thing I can say is that it's a systemic problem that we have to address, like as a public health issue, as a public health issue. On the second piece, I would say for individuals, because it was the same thing that happened for me. I was taught, I was consulting uh, when I was at the last place where Sam and I worked and I was really struggling with this values conflict. I saw I was trying to advocate for the employees around a benefit that they had that was trying to be taken away. I wasn't being successful. I remember calling an attorney for some pro bono advice. I was like, I'm in this situation. I'm in management. What should I do? And I remember them telling me, well, you know, typically once they promote you to management, they don't expect you to be advocating and organizing on behalf of the workers that they don't expect that, right? They're, they're expecting you to like go along with whatever management is laying down. But then he said, but you know what? After we were talking, he says, I have a question for you, though. I said, sure, what is it? He said, why are you still working for these people? And when he asked that question, the light bulb went on. I said, exactly, why am I? And so I think that for every person that's going through it, at some point, you have to make a choice. Because honestly, work is not worth sacrificing your values, your well-being, your finances. And so if you're seeing yourself in that situation, like I was, where I had to like muscle up the curve to walk into work, finding excuses to work digitally. Um, and even then it was just too much. And so 
at some point you have to make a call. And what I can say that Sweet Liberty does do for folks is that we help coach people out of organizations if they need to. Like we can, we help you with what we call your escape plan, honestly. If you know you're in a place that is not healthy for you anymore, we can help you escape it and find your next best path so that you can do that with a bridge, right? Because most of us can't just up and leave without some kind of support system, like, right? So we do that. It's not something that we like advertise, <laughs> but when we have people coming to us and they're letting us know that's what it is, we can help you with that. But you do have to like Harriet Tubman, as I call it, and figure out what is your liberation plan out of that place. Because um, your life is worth it. Your dignity is worth it. Your well-being is worth it. There's so much behind um, how to dismantle the systems that are in place and have been in place for to our consciousness forever, right? Um, and it sounds like, so there's something that comes alongside burnout that is not uh, identified in working worlds and that's compassion fatigue, second secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, because you know that our communities, uh, people in, at work, work with, you know, usually a team of people. And those people are in different communities and they represent different parts of the population. And those different, everybody's under attack. I mean, if we remove COVID from the equation, we still have the capitalist expectations. We still have racism. We have sexism. We have discriminate gender discrimination like there's all these other things that are that we're experiencing and when I go to lunch with a co-worker and they're like do you understand what just happened to me and they asked to do this and they expect me to do you know I, I I can walk down the street at lunchtime and like and you can hear people's conversations about no she didn't or <laughs> or whatever like that afternoon entailed for them and people are just on edge. And so you're, you're dealing with your own stuff, but you're also dealing with the things that are happening in different communities that you hear about. So there, as an organizer, you're, you're, you're organizing communities that need help. And so you're hearing all of these, many cases are, are like horrendous. You can, just listening to the abuse that people are suffering, um, the injustices, and, and you only have a certain limit of compassion that you can have for other people and yourself. And so that begins to show up like burnout, but they're, they're, they're very different. The systems that are in place are made to be in place and not change. You take something outside, like if you change something within the system, and this is true of all systems, uh, family units, uh, a, a software program, <laughs> anything, you pull something out, the system has to compensate for that missing piece. So it will write itself. Um, and either if it's a software, it will like crash because it doesn't have that one piece or it will develop something. It will, it will change itself to make it work. And that's what we do in family systems. When there's a divorce or there's a death, the family unit shifts and has to adjust that there's a huge loss. Um, and so there's a lot of these things that have to happen on a systematic scale for businesses, but it's also freeing to know that you and we as individuals, not to mention collectively, have the power to create new things that work for us and the people in our communities. Digging a little deeper into that, I'm curious, how do you 
incorporate those holistic practices into your approach when you are working with with clients? So uh, with Sweet Livity, we have a team of 12 of us and we all have sort of different modalities that we focus on. Uh, I brought up compassion fatigue. I'm a compassion fatigue, certified compassion fatigue specialist um, who had, that I that I was certified through one of our co-op members, Beverly Kyer, uh, who's marriage, marriage and family counselor and, and does work with first responders. So, so social workers, firemen, policemen, doctors uh, that are, as you can imagine, in COVID times, completely exhausted and stretched thin. Um, so we incorporate that lens, but the, there's also uh, just specific to, to our group, we do sound healing in our sessions. So we'll do um, some meditation with either sound bowls, obviously virtually <laughs> right now, um, or uh, some, some, some music, some meditative theta wave music with guided meditations. Um, there's a few Reiki uh, practitioners in our group. Uh, we do ancestral healing work through our group. Uh, there's <laughs> everything that we can incorporate. We will, we'll do dream circles with, with groups so that they can collectively uh, subconsciously work on a problem. So I'll stop there. If you think about the work that we do with organizations, we think about like um, our role as sort of like um, accompanying you on a journey, almost like a midwife. Like you have this idea of something you're trying to birth or recreate in terms of how you operate in your company or your organization, but you need someone to help guide you. And the way that we think about organizational change or transformation work is a little different from maybe how a typical organizational development consultant might think of it. So we also think about that journey of like shifting your organizational culture as like a learning journey and a journey that has to be carefully curated because we're asking you to change and dismantle things that you spend a lot of time making decisions about. And we're asking you to rethink your attitude and some of the decisions you've made to be willing to take on different behaviors and may on try on something new. And so in that vein, we also do things like restorative justice circle keeping. Um, we do a lot with heart-based conversations. So we draw on the world of holistic health to also like readapt tools that people have normally used to help organizations change their behavior. Um, so we think of the whole thing as a holistic approach because we don't separate the people who work there from the organization. And so that's what we look for is like, what's the root thing you're trying to do? What might be getting in your way of fulfilling your mission? But as you're doing that, how are your relationships with each other? So a lot of our work, we think of it as holistic because we focus on relationships. I'm curious what are when you're when you're working with clients what are some of the kind of most common hurdles that people are working to overcome. One hurdle that we see for folks is that they're afraid to reimagine the organization. We're in a world that wants you to prove or document that you're making an impact. And 
it typically tends to want you to document that in a very quantitative way. And what we're asking people to do is based on the work of Margaret Wheatley and others. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Ben, but there's this theory of organizational change called Below the Green Line. If you're like me, you're probably curious to learn more about this concept of the Green Line from best-selling author Margaret Wheatley. It's pretty interesting, and I found a great PDF from the National Equity Project that explains it well and expands upon the core concepts. I'll include that PDF in the show notes for you to check out. In the meantime, the Green Line is a concept that delineates the difference between the quantifiable, above the Green Line, and the qualitative, below the Green Line. Above the green line are your structures, processes, patterns, and below the green line are your relationships, information, and identity. So some examples above the green line, you have budgets, supervision, plans, policies, goals, objectives, management, and so on. Where below the green line are emotions, dreams, values, who you are and how you show up in a space. What we like about that framework is that it talks about the areas above the green line, which is like your structure. So like, what are, what's the people power? How much money? What are your facilities? What are all the things that you need and the people you need for you to do your work? What are the processes you put in place for how you make decisions or how you make this product or how you serve folks? And what's the pattern of plan around your work? What's your strategies? What are your goals for the next five years? Um, what are the standards for how you do your work? And what we have learned in our own experience and also what the theory posits is that if all you do is try to make changes above the green line, you those changes will not be substantial or they won't last very long. So as an example, we have a lot of people you can imagine for sure before um, the brutal murders of George Floyd and others last year. But for sure since, we've had a lot of people reaching out. We want to figure out how to do work around racial justice. We want to do work around EDI. Some people say Jedi. But they're thinking of it on a very, what we would say, surface level. Oh, maybe we just need to figure out a different way to recruit and get the right people on board. Maybe we just need to like allocate more money or like um, erase any inequities in terms of the pay scale. Maybe there's some way we need to like change who's making the decisions because it's just all like the people who are in power, which maybe it's mostly white folks or maybe it's mostly men or whatever. Maybe it's most cisgender folks. And we're like, no, if that's all you're interested in doing, we can't really help you because what we know the real work is, is below the green line. And the below the green line work is looking at relationships, identity, and information. So information has to do with how how does communication happen in your system? Who has access to information and who doesn't? Does everybody have the information they need exactly when they need it to do their best work? Or is it only held with certain roles or there's a lot of like cogs in the wheel and the information can't get out? What are the relationships of people to each other? Are the people connected to where they need to be connected to? Like what's the dynamics, power? And how people feel in terms of how they relate to one another. Does it feel like it's a safe environment where people can fully show up as themselves um, and ask for what they need, provide feedback uh, without being slapped on the hand? Um, and then identity. Like how do people feel their their full self is actually valued or not in the, 
in the space? Can they actually bring their whole selves? And what we're finding in a lot of the situations where we work is there's a lot of what I call single storing happening. People get single story around their identity. So for example, you know, um, what we find is like people might say, oh, we think we have a, a issue around gender or we think we have an issue around race or what have you. And so we can already know they're already single storing each other because they're, they're only looking like at one aspect of people's identity and think like, that's the thing. If we can just figure out that one thing. And so like, no, no, no. Actually, everybody has intersecting identities and likely in your workspace, some of the identities I carry are privileged and some are not. And we need to like actually help you navigate all that so you can figure out like what's the real issue. Is it race? Is it gender? Maybe. But it's usually likely something else that's not specifically related to identity. It's how people's identities are actually perceived and valued or not. And which of your identities do you know in this space are the ones that I can reveal and lift up because that's how success is measured here. Langston Hughes once said, all of you who are dreamers too, help me to make our world anew. I reach out my dreams to you. At the heart of Sweet Livity is a commitment to five dream-inspired core values, with DREAM being an acronym for diversity, results, equity, appreciation, mutual discovery, and well-being. This model represents, in the words of Sweet Livity, mutual reciprocity and support, which enable one's individual goals to be successfully met through trusting, creative, soulful, and innovative collaborations. I've always been a dreamer um, since I was a kid. Um, I was a daydreamer also. I think part of that was my way of escaping sometimes some of the the hard parts of my childhood. Um, And um, so I've always been a dreamer. And um, when I went on the healing journey that I spoke of earlier, some of the dreams that I had when I was younger came back to me. And particularly the strongest one was this idea of doing healing work. Um, Like what could it look like for the most vulnerable people to actually be liberated from whatever is oppressing them um, or impacting their life in a really challenging way? Like what would it look like? And so one of the things in terms of like kicking off Sweet Liberty, it was this idea of like coming up with an acronym for the word dream because it did feel like what would happen for all of us being part of this formation, Sweet Liberty, could be that the dreams that we had had as children or later in our lives, that this could be a place where we could live into those dreams, like remember them and actually actualize them. And then we're also trying to figure out a creative way to express our core values at the time that we launched Sweet Liberty. And so the fact that we wanted, we knew from jump that we needed to be a diverse team of people working with groups that had diverse leadership because we believed in the power of diversity and that while challenging, like the more diverse the group, the more likely you can have really good decisions that are being made because the perspectives of people with diverse viewpoints are being considered in those decisions. We also knew that the nature of our work, people would call like woo-woo maybe. So we also knew that 
people needed to know that we could actually help them get results um, and that we would help drive toward that. Um, equity was really key for us because diversity is not enough. And even within our own formations that those of us had been part of in the past, we were aware that there could be lots of ways, even with a group that was all POC, that we could be working in ways that were not equitable for everybody that would like privilege some, privilege some with certain intersecting identities versus others. And so we wanted to do our work, not just for equity in terms of who we chose to work with in terms of clients or collaborators, but also do the work with equity inside. And then there was definitely this sense that a lot of what we had experienced ourselves and what we saw with groups we work with was there was often not enough appreciation for the wisdom in that group. And so we always wanted to honor the and appreciate the wisdom in any circle, including our own. And that's also the way like we work with groups. Like even when we do assessments, it comes from a very appreciative inquiry way of doing things. And we're also making sure that in the way we work with folks that we have different rituals and processes around gratitude and appreciation. And then the last thing I'll say is like the M was this idea of it needed to be mutual. So like, even when we're working with each other or with groups, like what was the reciprocity that could happen? What would it look like for us to understand that um, our well-being was interconnected? So it needed to be mutual. And also that like, what we're trying is like innovating or like discovering new ways of working or new ways of forming and um, doing the day-to-day work of organizations. And so we just wanted to like claim out loud that we were very intentional, that we were on a journey of discovery with people and with ourselves. And we wanted it to be mutual, meaning beneficial to everybody that's part of the process. One of the modalities I mentioned is that we do dream work with, with groups. Um, for me, Daydreaming is part of your dream work. Um, in envisioning, just letting your mind go and like, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? What do you think you want to do? That did you don't see here and now? Like, um, that's all part of the dream work. And what's key for me is that I've uh, felt I've always felt that I'm not I'm not supposed to exist. A I'm an aberration, if you will, in the system. Um, and so for me to have permission or give myself permission to dream is the is one of the most powerful things I can do. Because I and I have the journey over the past few years has been like really frightening to envision anything new or anything that is good for me. <laughs> uh, because there's been a lot of trauma that I've been processing from the past um, and the present. Uh, and so the act, the simple act of dreaming and taking the time to dream consciously, that's radical because you're not supposed to do that. This is the system. This is what you do. You check in for work. You take your 15 and your 30 for lunch and your breaks. You go home and you continue uh, you know, the cycle. If you're lucky, you get family time. Um, if not, you that's something you have to put on the shelf. But so dreaming for me is really, really radical. And for us, for anyone who's been marginalized or been put on the sidelines or invisibilized or isolated, 
the dreaming is what connects you to the the way out of those situations. Uh, and so to keep that alive in our core values um, is really, really also important. Tell us a little bit about the decision to get B Corp certified and kind of what that process was like for you all. When I was still working at the National Community Development Institute, I think by this time, Samuel, you had left and you were um, had your own business around the IT and other work that you were doing. Uh, but I had a chance to work on a project in North Carolina. I was called Transforming Philanthropies in Communities of Color. And it was a two-year project where um, these amazing rural grassroots organizations were wanting to reimagine their relationship from being beholden to funders to being accountable to the communities where they worked. And they had always had ideas of being entrepreneurial in some way and then having that be the way that they funded their social justice work. And I never forget that um, after the end of those two years, we had a learning circle. And one of the things that I'll always appreciate Anne doing, I'll never forget her. Um, and she was a white leader of a multiracial organization that from the two years we started working with them, they shifted from calling themselves the, what do they call themselves? The Migrant Benevolent Association to the Multicultural Business Alliance. It was amazing. You had these poor rural Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and white women who had basically been provided services by the organization to figure out how to get out of poverty. It wasn't working. And those women had sewing skills, which were not in use anymore in the textile industry, which went south because of NAFTA. So they had always wondered, is there something entrepreneurial we could do to make money and put that money in our households, but also help this organization. So that's what they did for two years. But in the learning circle at the end, I remember Anne saying, if you had invested the money that you spent on consultants that helped our groups here, if you had actually invested it directly into our organizations, we would have been able to hire staff who would still be here after you all left. And that got me thinking about, hmm, because we were a nonprofit intermediary. So we were usually the group that funders felt comfortable giving the money and then us we granted through to or to communities of color or low income communities. So I was like, hmm. <clears throat> so that got me on a rant and it got me looking for like, I there needs to be another way that we do this work that is outside the nonprofit industrial complex. What is that? And so I found myself to the social venture network back then. Back in 2005, I went to my first meeting in San Diego or somewhere around there. And that's where I started learning about social entrepreneurship. And I'll never forget Ajax Green, who became my first business coach, who was a founding B Corp member, was talking to me back then about B Corp and what they were trying to do. I was like, oh, one day. And so later that day came when I had the idea that we need to do something and Sweet Liberty was about to be born. And so I remember reaching out to Ajax. And so I already knew from jump that I wanted Sweet Liberty to be a B Corp because I believed in the ideals that were being espoused. Looking back, um, it was too easy to be certified, frankly. And I talked to a lot of people who feel like it's hard. 
But I'll be honest, with the work that we're doing now, and we've been a B Corp now for almost nine years, it'll be nine years this fall. Maybe it wasn't hard for us to get certified early on because we were already coming from a pathway where we had been doing due diligence around how we worked in low-income communities of color, and we already knew that the very people we served were going to be the very people doing the work. We already talked about sharing power and like collective decision making and stuff. So I think there's ways that we were ahead of the curve in some ways that gave us more points where there were areas where we definitely had to do a lot of learning, like it was like reducing our environmental footprint, for example. So I just think there was something about the nature of us that we're doing the work and the values and our ways of operating that sort of made it maybe easier to get certified. But Honestly, now looking back, I think it was too easy. What was kind of your first big uh, client success story? I mean, First Five was one of the, that was the first client that we had. Um, and we've sort of been successfully growing from there. Diana? Yeah, and I think what I would add Sam, to that is with First Five, it was the first opportunity for us to work as Sweet Vividi. And like not tethered by like constraints about what we could say or couldn't say or what we could offer, couldn't offer because we were working at a, a nonprofit. Um, I think the truth telling that we did, um, to their local commission that funds first five, I think they heard the honesty from our storytelling and giving examples of our work of what we felt would or wouldn't work because they were struggling to make a decision for how to pivot um, and going from traditional grant making directly to nonprofit organizations to doing place-based work where they had looked at where children in LA were having the most trouble to succeed um, in terms of school and their well-being, all that. So long story short, they were in a really big moment as an institution to figure out how to pivot and do something that was more community-based. And I do feel that the way we facilitated that process, um, it helped them make a really bold and brave decision to become a group that did place-based work. And um, since we started working with them, which that was back in 2010, so I kind of predated a little bit Sweet Liberty. We kept working with them for four more years. But it's amazing the investment they've made financially and otherwise into 14 neighborhoods in LA. And we've also were able to shift um, some of our skill set to a local community. And we were able to, I think, probably Sam, I think we were able to successfully get about $6 million invested in one particular neighborhood that we worked with. So for us, that was pretty amazing to understand that I think what's hard now is how to have that same success with corporations. Cause most of our early work was mostly with um, government agencies like health and service, health and human service agencies or nonprofits. I think that sometimes for nonprofits, it's an easier sell for them to understand why it's important to do this culture shift work. I think, for some of the companies who are our beloved colleagues and they just have a harder time understanding why double down and invest in culture shift work. 
So I'm curious a little bit to talk about the shift that you all made in 2017 from individually owned to collective ownership. I'm curious, like what were some of the unexpected challenges from, from making that move and, and some of the unexpected benefits? Yeah, I think that one thing I'd like to credit um, BLAP for was the inclusion economy challenges that they launched back in 2017, I feel. Um, because at that point, Sam had had to step away for a minute. We still weren't generating enough revenue to really be sustaining. And um, and I was part of a peer exchange group that was part of that challenge. Um, you know, Sweet Liberty put together the curriculum for the peer exchange for people who wanted to take on that challenge. But I also participated. And I had um, three other business leaders, all women, by the way, who, who really encouraged me because I was feeling the the gap between what we wanted to do when we first launched, which was to launch as a co-op. And then we were advised that because the co-op form wasn't available in California at the time, which is where we were headquartered, that we should just form an LLC and then just work cooperatively together. And so um, I felt by this time, it was like 2018, that we weren't fulfilling that part of our values. And I felt that there was a conflict with me being the sole owner. And so I laid down the gauntlet that that's the work that I was ready to do to figure out like how to convert the company from being independently owned by me to being a co-op. And thank God, <laughs> Sam was able to come back right around that time. It was like the universe. I think, I think almost Sam, if I, if I hadn't made that shift in my heart and mind, like, no, 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 no more excuses about why we're not doing that. I, I don't know if you would have come back in at that time. Like, I don't know. But I always feel like there's no actions in the universe, right? And so Sam and I had a conversation and we said, let's just do it. And so immediately Sam and I said, from jump, we're co-leading. Let's just break that down right now. So we're co-leading. And then as we started bringing other people in that we had like um, consult contracted with over the years, we just said, we're just going to do it. Like, this, I think what surprised me and Sam, let me speak for myself, is how long it took. Like, I thought it was going to be quick and easy. Like, oh, you know, we all know each other. <laughs> we kind of all have a sense of what we want to do. Uh, no, it's it's hard work to form a collective, to form a co-op. And a lot of it is because I think, one, people have to really believe that, like, Diana and Sam were willing to get out of the way. I think there was so much time initially trying to like please Sam and myself. And it took a while for them to honestly believe, like, actually, no, if we need to tear this whole thing down and do something else, like call it something else, we don't care. It's not about that. Like, we're not beholden to like this entity formation or even the name. But it took a while for people to honestly believe that. And then it took a little longer for people to share their dreams. That's what it took. Once we had the combination of people giving themselves permission to dream big, what can we do together that we can't do by ourselves? But that required them to each know their dream. And then two, what do you need to do this work? So we had to get really vulnerable and COVID last year was the pivot moment for us because although we had had conversations about what people needed financial and otherwise to be part of this collective, Last year, we were not prepared for COVID at all. And majority of us were vulnerable 
economic wise and otherwise. And so we had to pivot and start mobilizing resources to help people around like keeping your lights on, making sure you can pay your rent or mortgage, like helping you around your health and well-being because a lot of us got sick or had family members we were caring for who were sick. And so I think that was the last piece that we needed to finish for people to like, to understand that this co-op needed to be a place where we were actually taking care of everybody's needs, not just serving externally. Like we had to be as well cared for as the communities and the groups that we work with. So I'll say that. So it's been like this amazing journey. And, you know, if I look at me and Sam's income today versus what it was, it's gone down because we share profits. But do you know what else is different? The work is better. The work is better because people are owning it and they're bringing their full authentic self to the work. So we're doing better work. That's amazing. And I, I know, I, I feel like I could talk to you all forever. There's so much good stuff here. Um, I, to kind of leave us, uh, I'm, I'm curious, is there anything that you want the audience to hear or know or reflect on or advice that you want to impart? I, so I think going back to the last question, um, one of the benefits of, of forming uh, the co-op in the way we're doing it and that it has taken time is that um, it goes back to the dreaming uh, and the creation aspect of our of, of us. Like we are infinite beings and the things that we can create are immense. Um, and the power that that brings us is, is limitless, but we are confined by our minds that are locked into a system. Uh, and so on the journey to create this co-op, we've had to create things differently. I can speak for myself. I I was fearful. How is this going to work? I really want to bring people on board. How are we going to pay that? Like, like, how do we do this? But it's the trust that we have, that Diana and I have, that not only in each other, but in the world that we, that our ancestors have called us to create. Like, this is, this is not just my dream. This is a dream, a dream, a culmination of, of many, 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 many lineages coming to this one intersection right here. Um, and then the two of us walking in that same vein, uh, creating something that is in a way reconnecting to ancient indigenous ways and creating something fused with current world technology, <laughs> uh, Zoom, <laughs> all of those things. So if you, if, if, if the word is, if you can dream it, if you can get to the point where you can give yourself permission to dream something you've never seen before, then that sparks, that sparks in you, that sparks in your community, that sparks in the world. Uh, and that's what we need. So dream, keep dreaming. Mm. And I think the only thing I'll add to that, Sam, because I just think you dropped the mic, is um, love. You know, a lot of groups are afraid to have love as one of their core values. But honestly, this is this is love work. The work of creating equity and safety for everybody in the space that you co-create with other people. Like, 
that is really um, humbling work and it requires a lot of love and a lot of compassion for yourself and other people. So what I would say to folks listening, no matter where you are in your journey of um, creating spaces where people work together to do amazing work together, like just love up on each other and love up on yourself and have a lot of compassion for each other and for yourself. Like we can, we can do it different and um, it's worth it. For better or worse, Sam and Diana have their work cut out for them. What Sweet Livity tackles are symptoms to a larger problem, systemic oppression. And it's through bolstering the confidence and self-worth of their clientele while breaking down the harmful norms of the workplace that they are building a better tomorrow for all of us. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Responsibly Different. As always, I have links to Sweet Livity, that PDF about the green line, and more in the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. We are really excited to share with all of you that Responsibly Different is officially sponsoring the New England BLD, which centers around leadership development for businesses in the B Corp movement. This three-day conference is 100% virtual, so you can tune in and enjoy from the comfort of your own home. I'll be sure to link to the agenda in the Sweet Liberty show notes as well. If you're enjoying this show, stop by our Instagram at Responsibly Different. Give us a follow and complete our survey, link in bio, to enter to win one of three B Corp boxes we'll be giving away. We want to be serving you as best we can with this content, and we can't do it without you. Next time on Responsibly Different, I sit down with the four students from the University of New Hampshire that helped us navigate the final leg of submitting our B-Impact assessment to B-Labs for review. I'll be sharing my chat with them and some behind-the-scenes listens from some of our meetings. We're all in this together. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective. Claire Clausen is our project manager. Jeremy Glass wrote copy and edited the content. Kevin Oates composed our music. And I, Ben Marine, was your host and producer. To learn more about Deergo Collective, you can visit our corner of the internet at deergocollective.com or follow us on social media.